Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. I was gratified to learn from Augustine Sedgwick's new book, Coffeeland, that 90% of the world shares my addiction to caffeine and can't function properly before 10 a.m. without it. Half a millennium ago, though, hardly anyone drank coffee, and the story of how it came to grace so many breakfast tables and offices and factory break rooms around the world says a lot about the very unequal world we live in. Augustine Sedgwick's book, Coffeeland, One Man's Dark Empire and the Making of Our Favorite Drug uses the global history of the Hill family, one of the coffee dynasties of El Salvador, to unravel how societies from the countryside to the city were remade in the image of the Industrial Revolution, and ultimately how that restructuring led to many of the inequalities we still struggle with today between the global north that drinks coffee and the global south that farms it. Augustine Sedgwick joins us from his home in Maine. Thanks so much for talking to me. No, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. I love a commodity history and I love coffee, so I'm well primed for your book. Um, But one thing I've noticed about all of these histories, whether they're about cotton or sugar or tea or Mm -hmm. salt, is that they all sell themselves as the key to understanding our present Mm. moment. So where does coffee fit in here? I think coffee is, is interesting because... It's so ubiquitous that it's easy to forget how extraordinary it is. I mean, 90% of people around the world use coffee or its um, derivative uh, caffeine uh, just to cope with the demands of everyday life. And I think when you stop and think about the effect that the vast majority of people on Earth are using this powerful drug just to get from one day to another, I think that says a lot about the world we live in and, and how we how we live in it. Yeah, and I think the difference, too, between coffee and cotton, say, is that cotton isn't exactly modifying your brain chemistry the way that coffee is. So how did people first tap into coffee's mysterious qualities, and how did it get from the hills of its native Ethiopia to pretty much everywhere else in the world. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It, it, it's a powerful drug. And when it was first used, I think people recognized that power. The first group of people to, to drink coffee in the beverage form were, were Sufi monks in Yemen, as far as we know, and probably about the 
middle of the 15th century, and they used coffee just because they wanted to stay up all night expressing their devotion to their god. And because coffee, you know, was a powerful substance, their use of it for this purpose was viewed with suspicion and and fear and doubt. You know, coffee is often said to derive from the Arabic word uh, kawe, which means uh, wine of Islam. And even that formulation suggests the kind of precarious position that it occupied within that culture and society, but also the kind of the kind of halting understandings that that people had of it. I think it's so interesting to see how when coffee makes its way outside of that insular culture, you can see it pretty rapidly start to change things. Mm-hmm. And of course, you can't point at coffee's introduction in Europe in the 16th century and say, aha, yes, then we have the Enlightenment. Mm-hmm. But it is kind of funny that once people transition from drinking beer in the morning because it's cleaner than water to drinking coffee, that all kinds of societal changes start to happen, particularly around work, right? Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. It's really difficult to draw a straight line between the introduction of any one, you know, commodity, beverage, or thing, and and these vast cultural changes. But uh, I, you know, I think there's there's something uh, really interesting there. On the one hand, when coffee was introduced to Europe in the in the 17th century, it was you know recognized right away as kind of uh, an aid to work by some people. You know, employers in London celebrated the fact that their clerks and apprentices were now drinking coffee rather than ale. This made them better workers. On the other hand, there was still, you know, strong disagreement about what the actual effects of the beverage were on the people who drank it. I mean, women in London thought that it made men lazy and impotent. So, you know, at the very least, apparently results varied, you know. Definitely, results still vary. Yeah, and exactly, and 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 what's really interesting is although, you know, coffee was immediately associated with this coffee house culture where people gathered, and discussed things as mundane as the weather and as consequential as you know the proper distribution of wealth and property within a, a democratic society, you know, it, the, they were coming together around this uh, one beverage. Now, the reason why it's so hard to link coffee directly to the Enlightenment is because those discussions and and those ideas didn't go away when Britain switched to a tea-drinking culture, necessarily. But the fact that people were using stimulants in greater quantities, whether they were coffee or tea, does seem to be related to some type of uh, social and cultural practices that led to the sharing of ideas and to groups who were able to gain for themselves new positions of power within society. Right. And then, of course, you know, the transformation of work culture down to the structure of the working day, to the conception of the working body. I definitely want to get to all that stuff. But before we can, we have to introduce the main protagonists of your book, The Hill Family. So why focus on James Hill, the founder of Hill Brothers Coffee? Mm -hmm. And why focus on El Salvador in particular when coffee is grown in all sorts of places and it's it's not even native to Latin America? Right. Yeah, that's a great question. I, w- I w- actually started out trying to understand the, the deeper roots of Central American migration to the United States. That's where I started, you know, about a decade ago. And to do that, you really have to understand coffee because that is the um, commodity around which Central American societies were transformed at the end of the 19th century. That's the commodity through which they were linked most strongly to the United States. 
and coffee formatted not only Central American societies, but also the connections of those societies to the wider world. It set the roots on which the first generation of Central American migrants, who were often elite migrants, uh, traveled into the wider world and and then established kind of home bases, which you know more or less map onto the largest communities of Central American migrants in the United States today. So I wanted to understand the, the deeper history of that migration, and coffee's the way to do it. Most especially, coffee in El Salvador is the way to do it, because that is the country, even from a global perspective, that most dedicated itself to coffee at the time. I mean, before 1880, coffee was a relatively minor part of the Salvadoran economy and its politics and its society. By 1950, everything in El Salvador was coffee. Everyone was employed by coffee, directly or indirectly. It was more than 90% of the country's exports. It was you know, a quarter of its GDP. Um, El Salvador became, turned itself into one of the most intensive uh, monocultures in modern history, certainly the most intensive coffee economy in modern history. And, and James Hill, the founder of the Hill family there, um, played an important role in that. So how did that transformation take place? James Hill from the industrial slums of Manchester lands in El Salvador and incredibly seems to recreate the factory floor on the hillsides of his Salvadoran coffee plantations. And you write that it wasn't just him, right? All of the coffee barons of El Salvador did that. So how did they change government and economic policy to rearrange the entire social order around making coffee? The pivot of that transformation was was really... um, you know, the privatization of communal lands, which had supported um, independent small farmers for for centuries. Um, the privatization of communal lands uh, at the end of the 19th century, which was something that happened all across Latin America and other parts of the world, as those economies began to search for products and uh, industries that could lead them toward uh, national prosperity. So once communal lands were privatized, it wasn't an immediate trans- transition to coffee, but land that had been held by communities, by towns, by collectivities was available for purchase on the open market. Right at the right at the same time as the country started attracting people like James Hill or trying to attract people like James Hill to develop its um, resources in the direction of the world market. So it's true that at first, Coffee in El Salvador, after land privatization, Coffee in El Salvador was actually an industry that was open to um, a relatively wide swath of society. You didn't have to be a a wealthy capitalist to get in on it. Um, Landowners of all uh, strata of society could could begin planting coffee with the aid of state subsidies. That that changed dramatically over time, of course, to the point where coffee became concentrated in very, very few hands, the hands of the uh, legendary 14 uh, families, the top of the top of Salvadoran society, who control you know the economy and politics and the military and most everything else, of which the Hill family was one. But why did coffee in El Salvador go from something that included many to something that excluded many and uh, even exploited many? And the answer is really the the increasing integration of the Salvadoran coffee economy with the U.S. market. I mean the things that the things that um, American coffee roasters were looking for in El Salvador favored those coffee growers who had the capital to achieve them. They, the American coffee growers began to look for 
signs of what they considered a good crop, which was a kind of a rich grower who had an orderly plantation and could um, had the capital to employ uh, regular people to maintain that plantation and harvest at the right time. So a coffee plantation, even the best and richest plantations in El Salvador, they're chaotic spaces, they're overgrown, they're dense tangles of trees and on steep ravines and relatively inaccessible. The fact that Salvadoran coffee plantations look pretty much like overgrown forests made the the kind of trained eyes of U.S. coffee roasters all the more important there. Because what American coffee roasters discovered in the first part of the 20th century was that coffee from plantation to plantation varied in its flavor properties very widely. It wasn't enough just to get quote-unquote Salvadoran coffee. It wasn't even enough to get um, coffee from one particular region of El Salvador and, and consider that a good crop. You had to get coffee from plantations where the owners had the um, money and the know-how to process it in a way that would um, bring out those qualities that most appear to the U.S. market. So the very requirements of U.S. coffee industry uh, helped to shape Salvadoran coffee industry into something exploitative, certainly. There's this part in the book where you describe how when Hill heard his workers laughing, he knew something was wrong because they weren't working, like they were wasting oxygen. And that was just horrifying to me, just the all-encompassing way that the human body was looked at as this machine to be calibrated into the perfect worker all the time. I mean, is that something that James Hill picked up from his time in Manchester? Yeah, it even derived in part from from Manchester, where capitalists were very interested in studying the capabilities of laborers and where a new idea of the human body based on the thermodynamic concept of energy had emerged in the middle of the 19th century to make people look like working things, just like uh, engines. So Hill didn't invent that idea by any means. But what he did do in El Salvador was to put it into practice on his plantations in a new way. He organized his plantations to force people to work as if work were a natural order, right? He didn't force them to do it by with physical violence or at gunpoint or under the lash as slave owners in other parts of the world, including the United States, had done. He made the imperative to work one that was um, embedded in the structure of the landscape itself. And he did that simply by putting into practice the most basic fundament of capitalism around the world, which is that, you know, if you want to eat, you have to work. That wasn't necessarily the case in El Salvador before um, land privatization, before Hill got there. But he shaped his plantations to route the sun's energy and to route nourishment and nutrients away from people to his coffee trees. And in the process of doing so, put into place there an economic system that seems awful and terrible to us, but is actually the same one under which we currently live, under which you know virtually everyone in the world currently lives. If I want to eat, then ultimately I have to work. And if we watch what he did in El Salvador and say, well, that's terrible, then there's a lot of other stuff that's terrible and that should change. 
I did think it was heartening, though, that ultimately Hill kind of failed at keeping his workers from laughing and talking and wasting oxygen because they are human. They're not machines. And in the end, his workers do try to organize a better life for themselves. So can you talk about how the labor movement was born on the coffee plantations and how it led to this mixed results rebellion against the order of the day? Yeah, you know, I really like the way you put it. They did resist the system that Hill put into place. They tried to overthrow it. They tried to make a better life, not only for themselves, but also for each other. And the basis of that for them was was really to look out for each other, to give people food who needed it, even if those people hadn't worked, to take care of old people, to take care of children, to take care of their family members and their neighbors. And their politics developed into more or less organized uh, communism, but it began as a movement to take each other into account in a really uh, terrible situation. And I think that's important to keep in mind, uh, especially given how still loaded and, and divisive, uh, you know, a term like communism is now. And they were especially motivated to do that by, you know, the development of the coffee plantation system and then also the crisis that the plantation system entered in the 1930s with the World Depression. Coffee workers who were armed primarily with agricultural tools tried to overthrow the coffee planters. And the response was genocidal massacre that was uh, perpetrated by the coffee planters in in uh, partnership with the state and ushered in in uh, you know more than half a century of military dictatorship in El Salvador and cost thousands, if not tens of thousands, of Salvadorans their lives and and really still organizes politics in that uh, country in, in important ways today. So in the end. So much of what Hill and his coffee baron brethren were trying to do is create perfect balance sheets for themselves. Where does the balance sheet of coffee in El Salvador land ultimately? Were the costs greater than the benefits? There's not much question about that from my perspective. I mean, there's a direct line from the attempted revolution in 1932 that ended in a genocidal massacre of thousands of Salvadorans to the 12-year-long Salvadoran civil war that pitted, uh, you know, the working people and the, and the political left of that country against the military dictatorship backed by the United States and, you know, sent hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Salvadorans um, into exile, fleeing the country, uh, rich and poor like many for the uh, United States. And, and you know, there's a direct line between those things and there's a direct line from those things to the present the conditions that send hundreds of thousands more Salvadorans uh, fleeing extraordinarily uh, grim circumstances to, uh, you know, leave their their families and their their friends and their loved ones to travel on foot thousands of miles across, you know, hostile terrain and and, and uh, trying to evade police and military forces that are are armed to the teeth and, and licensed to detain, if not worse and seeking a more secure life in a country where many people claim to hate them. Or, and, and, and certainly, at the very least, they face all sorts of discrimination, uh, systematic and, and just every day. And so the fact that, that this continues to be a kind of powerful 
option for for people in rural El Salvador really says much more about the the legacy of coffee in that country than than I ever could. There's so much more to the story of coffee than we could possibly fit into this conversation. So for the rest, check out Augustin Sedgwick's new book, Coffee Land, One Man's Dark Empire and the Making of Our Favorite Drug. We've got links in the show notes to the book and more, and we'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.